welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Christians in the Public Square. My name is Cole Bennett. A few weeks ago, Scott introduced a new part of our podcast where we'll use a much shorter time spot to deliver a monologue essay. We will occasionally have guest monologues as well, and I reiterate Scott's invitation to contact us if you are interested in delivering your own. I thought I would use my first turn at bat to argue a very simple claim that I believe needs to be made explicitly and thoroughly. Many of our listeners may find it too basic to attend to, but I really want to take the time to spell out one of the very central claims of our conversations. Here it is. Capitalism, wealth, and the pursuit of self-interest are morally neutral endeavors. I'll say that again. Capitalism, wealth, and the pursuit of self-interest are morally neutral endeavors. Working as I do in academia, I frequently hear my colleagues and my students make statements to the contrary, either directly or indirectly, as they teach, contribute to meetings, write papers, speak at conferences, and engage in social behavior all around me. Sometimes comments emerge through carefully considered responses to, say, Marxist theory in a book of literary criticism, or perhaps an earnest after-class discussion of Ayn Rand's Fountainhead, which a colleague of mine includes in his American Novels class. But mostly not. Mostly, I see my colleagues and students posting diatribes on social media that, for example, blame capitalism for the fact that some people struggle with basic expenses, uh, that a large percentage of black Americans suffer from COVID-19 than whites, or for the difficulty Airbnb property owners who took out too many mortgages are now experiencing. Sometimes they argue that wealth flows only one way, making statements like, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, despite reports from all over the economy that show increasing wealth at all strata of society and a monumental paradigmatic improvement of material conditions in the West since the Enlightenment, when open markets begin rapidly expanding. My opponent's arguments not only seem intent on promoting a narrative that markets ultimately fail, but also to characterize profit-making as a desultory activity that should be minimized to escape the stench of sin. I wish to argue just the opposite. Let me start with this illustration. When I was a boy, my family didn't have much money. We were very definitely working class, living in a house at the end of a blacktop road in rural East Texas. I really enjoyed reading, and as I got into middle school, I realized that, like my brothers before me, I would need to get a certain job in order to earn money to buy things I wanted, which for me was more books. I was too young to drive, so I turned to just about the only job available in my walking radius, mowing other people's yards. My parents helped me figure out how to ask my neighbors if they wanted lawn service, and after a while, I had a few regular customers for whom I would walk to their house and mow every few weeks. 
This is how I earned spending money before I became old enough to drive and got more steady part-time work elsewhere. This story is not unique. I am sure many young people find a way to earn extra money doing odd jobs as middle schoolers. And that's my point. I had to decide if mowing my neighbor's yard, which took about three hours, was worth the $10 he paid me. Which, in 1970, $10 was what we call folding money. I was completely in charge of that decision. Am I willing to exchange three hours of my time and labor for $10? The time and the labor are mine. They're my capital. I can either keep them or sell them. I chose to sell them, and I made that choice over and over for several summers. In economic terms, I invested my capital for a return. If I thought there would be no return, or that the return would be too small, I would not have invested in that way. To me, the time and labor were worth less than the $10 to me, so my price actually made me a profit. But I want to quickly point out that my neighbors were also winners. To them, spending $10 to get their yard mowed was a good deal, because it was actually worth more than that to them. Hence, they were getting a bargain. What if I had charged $15 or $25? Knowing my neighbors as I did, I felt certain that these prices would have driven them to find someone else or mow their yard themselves. But it was worth at least a little bit more than $10 because they would pay that price only if they counted it a bargain. This sense of win-win is true of every market exchange. It's a basic economic principle. When I pay $10 for a pizza, the shop makes a profit because it didn't cost them to make that pie. And I gain because my estimation of the time, effort, expertise, and ingredients involved to get that pizza to my table is worth more than $10. Hence, each participant in the market exchange is satisfied. And the shop owner knows this. He or she has invested research to understand that people in my town like pizza, that there's room for his or her pizza shop, and customers will pay for it in a way that benefits all parties. This is how the pizza entrepreneur earns a living. Let's expand this thought a bit to a strained market situation that Scott and I have discussed briefly in the past. Imagine that a hurricane hits a coastal area and knocks out all power for an indefinite time. Imagine further that two people in a faraway town rent a truck, load it with bags of ice, and drive a couple hundred miles to sell them for $30 each. Many people would find that a preposterous price for a bag of ice that normally sells for $3. But you know who wouldn't? People who really need ice for medicines that must stay cold, or milk for their children, or other crucial refrigeration needs that we might not even know about. These buyers are willing to reward the two entrepreneurs who invested their time, effort, and money for the ice, truck, gas, and insurance to bring them a product they desperately need. Both sides perceive a bargain, even if some people use the term gouging. While non-customers walk away, 
Ice purchasers regard their cool, preserved items more valuable than the $30 they paid for the bag of ice. Again, it's a win-win. In market exchanges, all buyers and all sellers are seeking their self-interest. In the words of Adam Smith, quote, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest, close quote. That is to say, the baker doesn't supply my need of bread because he's benevolent and wants to engage in charity. The baker knows my need for bread will help him earn a living. All sellers want to maximize profit, and all buyers want to maximize value. You may think of this impulse as greed, but I would argue it is certainly not. Maximizing profit in a market transaction is a discernible, measurable process. Greed is a condition of the heart or conscience, reckoned between humans and their God. If I charge the very highest price I can possibly receive for an item in the marketplace, amassing millions or billions of dollars of wealth, I have engaged in neither a moral nor an immoral act. I have maximized my profits. I would argue that what I do with my discretionary income is more indicative of moral behavior. Perhaps I'll build bigger and bigger barns to display my wealth, or collect Learjets, or Vegas vacations to amuse myself. But perhaps I'll donate millions of dollars to buy insect-repelling mosquito netting for people in Africa, as Bill Gates has done, or contribute millions to AIDS research and relief, as Elton John has done. My point is that the successful sussing out of goods or services I can provide for others and my successful efforts marketing and selling to others for profit illustrates a pursuit of self-interest. It does not illustrate greed. It might be apparent by this point that I have an emotional connection to this topic. The fact is that I do indeed. I find the idea of investing one's ideas, time, and effort into developing a product or service that can then be sold in the marketplace a beautifully simple notion, and I resist glib criticisms of it and government intrusion into it. Capitalism and its markets have done more to alleviate world poverty than anything else in history. Individuals everywhere are operating on local information about the needs and wants of their own communities to build business opportunities. Through daily transactions, they are paying attention to others to pursue their own self-interest of earning a living, building wealth for their families, and pursuing their dreams. According to the U.S. Agency for International Development, worldwide extreme poverty has been cut in half in the last 30 years. Many people born across the world whose standard of living was destined to be based on their family's social position have found market-based ways of earning a living and rising from the social codes of so-called station or caste. And according to the Cato Institute, almost 80% of all millionaires in the United States are first-generation wealthy, 
which argues against the notion that success follows only those who already have money. This is why I have an emotional connection to capitalism and markets. I don't focus on the sneering Monopoly cartoon character with a mustache and a monocle because he's not the typical market participant. In fact, people who use their money to influence laws to depart from normal market mechanisms, called crony capitalists, are typically the actors to whom people object when they disparage capitalism. Rather, I think of the average citizen who visualizes a way to make a profit while pursuing a great idea. By simply registering a business name downtown, he or she can rent a storefront or create a website and begin. Customers who are thus well served will return and tell others. Competition might then move in to cause prices to lower or quality to improve and buyers keep benefiting by the effort. The simplicity is beautiful and easy to underestimate. In future essays, I will address some ways I feel top-down interference has damaged the normal functioning of markets in the United States by distorting incentives. For now, I will close with this vignette. A few years ago, a colleague challenged me with a story of how, in his opinion, a businessman he had read about utterly broke with his capitalistic impulse and thus made life better for others. A mill owner with several employees lost all his buildings, equipment, and supplies in a dreadful fire. During the many months of downtime that it took to clear the mess and build a new mill, the owner kept his employees on the payroll so that they could continue to care for themselves and their families until they could work in the new mill. This behavior, my friend concluded, proved absolutely how a rejection of capitalism was the moral and proper thing to do. My answer to my friend was simple. First, the man had obviously been so successful in the years leading up to the fire and had made such profits and lived so prudently that he could effectively engage in charity by giving money to his employees during the building of the new mill. Moreover, one could absolutely argue that the mill owner considered the months of payroll to idle employees an investment that would pay off handsomely in loyalty, lower training expenses, and overall goodwill toward himself, the employer. Finally, however, my main argument to my colleague was this. When a person pursues self-interest, he or she often engages in behavior that does not merely put money in the bank. The mill owner, like many philanthropists I know, enjoy making money in order to give it away to those who need it. To assume that turning a profit in the marketplace is where the pursuit of self-interest begins and ends is to misunderstand markets, capitalism, and their relationship to investment. I didn't mow lawns just to receive $10. My shelves full of books tell the real story. <laughs>